The Hero's Journey podcast is filled with an abundance of spoilers. If you haven't read this week's book, I recommend you do so, as it will certainly help you follow along. Although, if you're only interested in hearing our take on this story, listen on. Hello, and welcome to A Hero's Journey, a podcast in which my two far smarter friends, Alex, and I'm Zach, attempt to convince me, your judge, Jack, and you, the listener, whether a story is a hero's journey. The hero's journey is Joseph Campbell's monomyth. It breaks down the most common recurring themes of our stories into a single template. The journey consists of three overarching parts, the departure, the initiation, and the return. The departure is where our hero is called to action and leaves their ordinary world behind them. The initiation, where our hero undergoes the trials and tribulations of their quest before ultimately achieving their goals. And finally, the return, where after having completed their quest, our hero must return to some semblance of normalcy. This week, we're going to be talking about Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. If you don't know the tale of Harry Potter, I suggest you spend the next three hours or so watching the movie or reading the book, because I'm not really going to go through it here. But uh, spoiler warnings if you haven't, I suppose. And we begin today, once again, where all good stories start, with our call to adventure and our departure from the ordinary world. Arguing for, I give you Zach. Well, uh, Harry Potter follows, you know, your fairly basic hero's journey here. We're looking at first a call to the call to adventure is actually several calls to adventure as all the letters start to arrive at the house for Harry um, kind of in abundance. And then the Dursleys, Dursleys keep trying to get rid of them over and over and over. Um, but yet more and more keep coming, kind of really showcasing that this call is, is a strong one for Harry. Um, the refusal of the call is... Uh, Harry is trying to get these letters at first. You know, he's curious what they are. He's trying to get them. The Dursleys keep burning them and throwing them away and doing everything they can. Um, so while he himself is not refusing the call outright, the situation that he find, finds himself is is having the call refused for him, um, partially because the Dursleys don't want to be involved in the Wizarding World whatsoever um, from fear uh, whether it's from love, trying to protect him, you could argue all those different things, but they're definitely refusing it for him. Um, we meet uh, Harry's first mentor, and and to be frank, Harry has a multitude of mentors throughout the book. You, you know, he's going to school where there's going to be teachers whose jobs are to be his mentor. But uh, the first one we see is Hagrid at the uh, at the cabin on the uh, on the ocean side, coming to pick him up and take him away from the Dursleys. Um, Harry really crosses the threshold when he crosses the literal threshold of crossing into the Diagon Alley uh, to do his school shopping with Hagrid. Uh, while he's at the Diagon Alley, he really starts to see an abundance of things of the wizarding world. Um, you know, he, he gets his wand. He, realize, he finds out he's got an, a vast amount of wealth. It really kind of just emphasizes that his life is, is, is changed from what it was. Uh, and then finally, we get to the belly of the whale, which I believe is to be the sorting hat when he's actually at Hogwarts. Um, I think there's a lot of times previous to this where 
you could argue that Harry's kind of being pushed along on his adventure. And it's really the first time that Harry kind of takes ownership over what he wants in the direction of his life in the wizarding world, where he talks to the hat and tells him that he wants to be in Gryffindor as opposed to Slytherin because he's seen how Slytherin exemplaries act. And um, it's kind of showcasing some ownership of the situation and showcasing, okay, he's now, oh, Harry is a wizard. He's believed in himself and he's, and he's taking steps to affect his own journey. So wrapping that all up, that's kind of how I view the departure in the first Harry Potter book here. Since Harry never gets a letter until Hagrid gives it to him, uh, I don't know how that would be a call to adventure. He's just literally getting mail. Uh, that seems like a pretty everyday occurrence to me. And then the destruction of the letters being a refusal from the Dursleys doesn't sound like a refusal at all because Harry is desperately trying to get and read these letters. Um, to, to your so I, I want to interject one point. Um, Alex, I don't under know necessarily how you receive mail. Our lives can be slightly different. Do yours happen to come by owl and cascade through Letterbox. your um, house and down the fireplace? And Has it happened recently? I'll give you mm, that one. Okay. I just wanted to clarify even, for our listeners. It was just a, a very, small point. very uh, small point. Even if we want to say that, like, even if you just want to talk about the letters arriving normally, like through the post box at first, um, this Harry is an orphan who lives, like, who has essentially no friends and has nobody who would want to send him a letter. So I think even just getting in, a in normal fact, letter Harry in the mail would be a significant <laughs> event for poor Harry Potter. All right, that's fine. <laughs> um, refusal to call, I admit, it's it's a little weak. Um, I think Harry is longing for some, you know, true sort of of change in his life. So yes, he he really wants to be doing it. So it'd be hard for him to refuse it in any meaningful way. He could perhaps argue his hesitation at meeting Hagrid at first, but I don't think that's particularly strong either. So I think the book is using the Dursleys as the refusal of call. I admit that it's not Harry actively refusing it himself. Yeah, I don't know if someone can refuse a call for you, but that'll be up to Jack. Um, I think that the mentor being Hagrid is a good, you know, good point. It's the first time that Harry's interacting with the Wizarding World. Hagrid gives him a lot of gifts, like uh, a cake and an owl headwig, and takes him to get his wand. All that—that's fine. Uh, crossing the threshold in Diagon Alley. Um, I don't know if Harry is really in the magical world at this point he's not really doing anything like we said Hagrid is there mentoring him taking him everywhere Harry is not interacting in the world in a significant way in my mind as the judge I just want to point out that there's actually a line somewhere after Harry crosses into Diagon Alley where he talks about entering a magical new world I mean there's like yeah. familiars floating around he sees goblins and and he, they go you know he, there's more than enough differences between your normal british main street and diagon alley that i i view it as the wizarding world especially when he interacts at the wand shop and like the wand chooses the wizard and all that and it's it's kind of spoopy though I, it is an interesting point that he doesn't interact with the world, but it's definitely intended to be his our first foray into this zany world of magic that I think we might also take for granted as people that grew up on this story. That it's actually rereading this for with a 
fresh set of eyes for this podcast. I was shocked by how much I misremembered things and how much different the opening of this book was and how much more familiar it felt once we moved in to the magical world in Hogwarts. Yeah, I mean, Diagon, we we see Diagon Alley in every book that we read with Harry Potter and it starts to become kind of commonplace for us. But for Harry, especially in his first visit, it's like, whoa, look at all this stuff. Zach, I think your point about Harry getting his wand, that tips the scale for me. That's uh, when Harry can start using magic on his own. I I would see that as a threshold. Um, Now for Belly of the Whale, I like this point about the sorting hat. My only little gripe is what change do you see happening here i think that this belly of the whale fits more here because harry is essentially telling the hat i don't want to be in slytherin that's not the kind of person i want to be i've seen how people in slytherin act he's taking agency of his own decision and it's the first lasting choice that he makes that's going to impact his entirety of his stay at hogwarts okay i can see him having some agency and making a choice is definitely a change for someone whose life has been as uh, bad and difficult as Harry's has. Yeah, and predetermined. So ultimately, uh, I think Harry Potter, we can debate the refusal of the call, whether someone can refuse it for you, or in my personal opinion, although Zach was a little dismissive of it, I actually think Harry's moments of internal doubt when Hagrid shows up more fits for my own personal idea of him refusing the call. But there certainly seems to be something there. And then it's beat for beat on meeting the mentor, crossing the threshold, and getting stuck into the wizarding world in the belly of the whale with the sorting hat. Diving right into Harry's initiation into the magical world of Hogwarts, uh, starting with our road of trials, I give you Zach. So in the initiation, uh... The Road of Trials, just like anything, is going to be kind of the bulk of our tale. And uh, the instances happen throughout the story. Uh, We've got the Midnight Duel with Malfoy. Uh, We have Halloween, where the troll shows up. And in my opinion, we have uh, Harry's introduction to Quidditch and what it means for him uh, as the Seeker. So, um, but kind of moving past that, those I think are the three things that shows Harry's growth. Harry meets with the higher power, which both in this book and throughout Harry Potter in general is Dumbledore. Um, He has some late night chats with Dumbledore. He receives an invisibility cloak as well as emotional support from Dumbledore, kind of fulfilling the the boons that uh, the higher power needs to bestow upon Harry beyond the the multiple kind of behind the scene gifts that we see Dumbledore has has, uh, done for Harry throughout his whole life. Uh, So for the Temptress, uh, it's, it's, Again, we've we've broadened kind of Campbell's temptation work here, especially because we're dealing with 11-year-old children. And in this case, we're talking about the mirror of Aristid, which is uh, a mirror that shows somebody what they most desire. Um, and in this case, it's Harry's parents. And so there's a great temptation for Harry just to kind of, and, and Dumbledore even warns against this, you know, spend too much time, spend his whole life looking at, at what it is that he wants instead of actually living his life. Uh, as far as the atonement with the creator, I believe it's when he descends into the dungeons to face Voldemort. Um, as a general rule, when we think about a hero's journey, I think most of us think that this atonement with the creator has a has a certain positive vibe to it. It's something that they come out of the, the situation um, having really felt good about their interactions with their creator, but 
what we've kind of seen in actuality, both in this book and in the ones we've discussed in the past, is it tends not to be the case, at least in what we've read, because it's not like when he's done facing Voldemort, he has this newfound respect for Voldemort and and Voldemort for him, and they're going to be all buddy-buddy. But Voldemort certainly fits the vibes of the creator in this story, because without Voldemort, Harry Potter would be a nobody. And, uh, and I think, so his interactions here with him is really showcasing that atonement. Um, his apotheosis here in which he creates a better understanding is when he realizes that Quarrel is the bad guy instead of Snape. He spent the entire book pretty much convinced that Snape is the worst person to have ever existed. Uh, and <laughs> he, uh, he's very surprised to find that Quarrel is the one who's been the host for Voldemort. Uh, I think it kind of puts perspective on his time, uh, at Hogwarts up to this point. And finally, Ultimate Boon is getting actually getting the uh, the Sorcerer's Stone uh, so that Voldemort mainly can't have it. All right, Zach, going into your Road of Trials, um, while I see this, this Midnight Duel fighting the Troll and winning a Quidditch match as difficult things, uh, I don't think that Harry is really changing here. Um, we already saw that he's brave and his time with the Dursleys and... Uh, picking not to be in Slytherin, and we saw he's resourceful again from his time with the Dursleys being abused and coming out of that fairly well. So what change do you see that Harry's going under with these tasks? So I disagree with your point that showcases Harry's bravery and kind of pre-existing conditions when he lives with the Dursleys. I think we see a very passive Harry um, especially in the first book, which is what we're dealing with when he's interacting with the Dursleys. We see somebody who's doing all the chores. We see somebody who lets himself get stepped on a lot. And so I, I disagree. That, I mean, yes, it's it's a hard life that he's living, but I don't think he really showcases bravery and like self, uh, you know, to, and a ton of reliance on others specifically. You know, he relies almost solely on himself. And it's really when he starts getting to this duel where he asks, you know, Ron is his, his second uh, and he's, you know, using his friends as support throughout the duel and their interactions with the troll um, and with Quidditch. It's like a team sport. So he's never really had to rely on others. And yes, he makes the, like the, the winning uh, snitch catch, but um, it's still a, a team game. So I think a, we're seeing him grow as his reliance on others, his self-confidence, and really kind of into his own as a wizard, which is something that he did, wasn't even aware existed before uh, arriving to Hogwarts. So I think those are the three main ways in which he, he grows as a, as a person. All right. I think that's a decent point. I'll, I'll give that one to you. Um, meeting with a higher power being Dumbledore. I, I want to quibble because Harry doesn't actually meet Dumbledore to get this invisibility cloak, but then you bring up the mirror of Erised and... I have a hard time arguing that that emotional support and physical meeting are not this. And nice. again, the mirror with the arrow said, I love this point. Um, I'm a sucker for a metaphorical tempt temptress. And this definitely fits. Uh, Zach, I wanted you to read a quote, but you didn't. It, like right after Harry sees the mirror, he says he had seen his parents, would be seeing them again tonight. He had almost forgotten about Flamel. It didn't seem very important anymore. Um, he was also forgetting to eat. So yeah, we can understand that the mirror eat. might actually be dangerous. People might just. Yeah. If that's not a call away from the journey, I don't know what is. Um, we were talking about with the creator, though. 
I, I really don't see this descending into the dungeons as um, an atonement with the creator. First off, there's no understanding that we see. There's still definitely a struggle and a fight to be had, uh, especially evidenced by you know six other books about Harry fighting with Voldemort. So that, it doesn't seem like while he does meet the creator, I don't think there's any atonement occurring. Um, I disagree in one particular way, and that's that the... It, the third book is not a fight with Voldemort? No, and I, and I don't even want to move out beyond this book, because if we're just talking about in the Sorcerer's Stone, um, this is you know the only interaction we have with Voldemort. We're not aware that there's going to be more, really. And if we're looking at a tell with the creator, what we've decided the definition is in this step, the hero must confront and be initiated by whoever holds the ultimate power in his life. And I say the person who holds the ultimate power in his life is Voldemort. I'm not saying that he it doesn't say that he has to willingly, you know, face this interaction. It doesn't say that he has to be aware that's what he's heading towards. But he, when he, when when Quirrell turns around and you know Voldemort's quote unquote face to face with Harry and they have this interaction, I think that is, if not necessarily an atonement with the creator, is an interaction with the creator that leaves both parties changed from what they were beforehand. For apotheosis, realizing Quirrell is a bad guy um, and not Snape. Well, first off, I quibble that Snape is a bad person, um, but that's probably for a later discussion. Um, I, I don't know if this really has much effect on the story, though. Uh, realizing that Quirrell is a bad person doesn't really change anything that's happened up until this point, and it doesn't change anything happening beyond it. Quirrell has had very little impact on the story until now and continues to have very little impact afterwards. So I, I don't know how the story flows to this point and from this point. Um, I think you're right in that Quirrell's emphasis on the story has been fairly minimal. I deal less with the fact that Quirrell is the bad guy and more with the fact that Snape is not. Um, because I think through his time here at Hogwarts, that has kind of tinted Harry's view, not only of Snape, but of the actions that have been occurring behind the scenes, whether it's the troll or interactions with the Cerberus. Um, and, you know, all these things where he's been painting Snape in this very bad light, and that has caused him to view the events that have happened that he hasn't seen incorrectly. And so I think there's a, there's an amount of realization that comes from the fact that, oh, everything I thought about the situation that I was only getting peeks at was the wrong way to view it. Uh, I think that your ultimate boon of Harry getting the stone is pretty on point. I don't see a way to argue about that. Uh, just going back to Apotheosis for a second, I wish that Harry had realized how he got the stone. I think that would have been a better Apotheosis than any realization about Snape that is thrown out by the next year. And for readers who it might have been a long time, how does Harry acquire the stone? Uh, Dumbledore well, actually tells him. Uh, I've got the quote right here pulled yeah. up. Um, he pretty much tells him that it was Dumbledore's idea to hide the stone in the mirror. Um, and he says, only one who wanted to find the stone, find it, but not use it, would uh, be able to get it. Otherwise, they just see themselves making gold or drinking the elixir of life. So it's pretty much showcasing that 
Harry didn't want to use the stone. He just wanted to find it, which is why he sees himself in the mirror finding it, and so why he's able to get the, the stone out of the mirror, and why Quirrell slash Voldemort were having a hard time getting it out of uh, the mirror of Aristide. Uh, that's going to bring us again to a close of a pretty beat-by-beat beat initiation. This might be the clearest temptress we've ever had, despite not being, uh, by our idea of the temptress, rather than necessarily Campbell's. It, it, it hits so point for point. I don't know if I have anything else to dig into on the initiation. Finally, we are coming to our return to the boring, terrible world of the Muggles and Dursleys. Starting off, we have Zach. So Harry doesn't want to go back to the Muggle world, and, and that's understandable. Um, he he spent his whole life up to this point pretty much being abused by him, and, and it's not unreasonable that he wants to uh, not return to the muggle world. So that's his refusal of the return to the world that existed before the wizarding world. The magic flight in this instance is when uh, Harry, you know, he gets the stone and the ultimate boon. He passes out, wakes up in the medical ward of Hogwarts, having found out that uh, Dumbledore rescued him from the scene uh, and brought him here. This encapsulates both the, the magical flight because it's something that's out of Harry's control as well as the rescue from without because Dumbledore is rescuing him. Uh, moving on, we get the crossing of the return threshold, which is returning to the Dursleys. Uh, he, we don't see this moment happening in the actual story because the story ends before he returns home. So you could call it the train ride back to uh, the non-wizarding world. Um, but what we do see is Harry's decisions on how he's going to interact with the Dursleys. And so if I, I take a quote here from the very last page... Um, where Hermione is wishing uh, Harry to have a good holiday. Um, and Harry says, oh, I will. And they, and they were surprised at the grin that was spreading over his face. Uh, they don't know we're not allowed to use magic at home. I'm going to have a lot of fun with Dudley this summer. Uh, pretty much showcasing that because of the confidence and the, you know, I would like to say it's because of the magical skill, but it's not because he's not actually allowed to use the magic at home. So, Yes, he's uh, he's grown as a person. He's uh, he's grown in confidence and his ability to rely on himself, and a little bit in his slyness. Um, he's kind of allowed himself the freedom to live away from Hogwarts, where he's viewed it really as a safe haven. Although he was at more danger in Hogwarts than he was at home uh, for majority of his life, um, but he he now has the freedom to live amongst the Dursleys. The, because he's he has the ability to kind of bluff his way into having some power in the situation. So I think that showcases his master of the two worlds. He's he's the Quidditch star. He's the man who stopped Voldemort once more. The master that's the master of the Wizarding World, and he can return to the human world and interact with his abusive family in a way that doesn't put him on the back foot. That's master of the Muggle world, and it's really an ability to let him live his life freely moving forward. So starting off with your refusal of the return, uh, while we can imply that Harry doesn't really want to go back to the Dursleys, he never says this. We we never see Harry uh, wanting to go back. I actually reread this section really quick while you were talking. Um, I saw I was paying ah, attention so to. <laughs> I saw I was paying attention to. Discussion. Uh, Harry is actually like kind of welcoming this return. He doesn't ask to stay at Hogwarts. He doesn't 
try and make that argument in the book. I think in the movie he does, but in the book he's more than willing to go back. All right, Zach, do you have anything about no, refusal? No, <laughs> All right, good, because I'm going to see the next two points. Zach, I think your magic flight and rescue from without are perfect. Like you said, these are great examples. I have no argument against those. Uh, crossing the turn threshold, I have a quibble with. In this step, the hero is supposed to share what he's learned on this journey with the people that he goes back to. And there is no way that Harry is going to be sharing any magical knowledge with the Dursleys. As you pointed out in your argument, he can't even share that he's not allowed to use magic because that would undermine what he's trying to do in living with the Dursleys. Now, if we want to get really specific, we did say maybe figure out how to, to share the wisdom with the rest of the world. But I think the part that inhibits him is that the fact that he's blatantly not allowed to showcase any of the wizarding world to anything in the muggle world. We also see him returning to the Dursleys a changed man and, well, I guess a changed boy. Uh, he's, he's definitely acquired this magical knowledge, but he, he that's not what he's using in his interactions with the Dursleys, or at least not what he's planning to use. He's, he's, he's gained self-confidence, self-reliance, knowledge that there's other people outside of this world that care for him and that he has importance to. So, you know, if, if you spent your whole life just interacting with people who are supposed to be your family, who really don't care about you whatsoever, um, the fact that you now know that there are people outside of that core group of people who are now your your assumed family, your friends, your, your mentors at the school, I think that imparts a certain amount of self-confidence on anybody let alone just Harry, that allows him to kind of share this new version of himself with the Dursleys. Now, whether or not the Dursleys are appreciative of this is a completely different matter. They probably just wanted their, uh, their kitchen scuttle boy back. But um, he... Sh yeah, luckily for you, the, the people that Harry shares himself with don't need to appreciate him. Yeah, so I think he's he's definitely sharing the wisdom he's learned. They just don't appreciate it. I think I think you've convinced me there. So the master of two worlds uh, and the freedom to live, I'm going to try and argue together here. I don't think that Harry making threats to the Dursleys is really him mastering that world or giving him freedom to live because he is still living with abusers. Um, he's not free to travel by himself. He's not living in a world of nice people or even people who care about him at all. So I, I don't see that as really a freedom to live. Harry's still an 11-year-old boy. We have to deal with the fact that he has as much power to live his life as is reasonable for, a, for an 11-year-old boy to have. Um, he's going to have some you know, ability to not live under the oppressive thumb of the Dursleys as directly. He's going to have to live in their household but we're not. I don't think we're going to be seeing a boy who's going to be pushed around and is doing all the chores in the house. Um, this is an authority kind of to live his life as he wants without an undue influence from the exterior. Tragically, as we leave our return to the mogul world here, I have to admit that I think Alex makes a really good point that although we remember Harry as having a strong refusal of the return, that's actually a scene from the movie and not in the book itself. 
Uh, so that's going to leave us with everything else. I feel Harry's journey strongly matches for the return, leaving us with a final score of 16 out of 17. Uh, remember, there are no true heroes journeys, or at least we've yet to find one. In general, we grew up on these books and the movies and everything else that came out related to Harry Potter. Uh, you know, I have way too many photos of myself that I'm proud at at the age of 25 going to Universal Studios Harry Potter World. <laughs> I am recording this in my Slytherin sweatshirt. Uh, so I don't know if we count as the most unbiased source when it comes to reviewing Harry Potter, but God, if you haven't reread these in a while, or even if you had, they're really worth going back through. I had so much fun doing this. Yeah. Uh, I had a hard time arguing against here. Speaking as a Harry Potter diehard fan, I still have a poster in my room from the seventh book release. And I just want to say, like, reading this now, probably for the eighth or ninth time, I, I saw new things. Like, I saw some foreshadowing that I hadn't seen before. Like, on Harry's first night in Hogwarts, he dreams of the back of his head talking to him. Um, he talks about facing a full-grown dragon like he does in the fourth book. And he mentions that if Baltimore were to take control of the school, he would turn it into a school for dark arts like we see in the seventh. Just all this foreshadowing. I know that J.K. Rowling probably didn't intend for all of those things to happen when she wrote this book. But it's just so so much depth and so much goodness in this. And I also really got the undercurrents of uh, Dumbledore's relationship with Grindelwald and the one line that he's mentioned in. <laughs> I didn't know if that came through to you guys. Now, love Harry Potter. Love this book. I think Alex did a good job arguing, opposed. Uh, I was fairly confident from my, uh, from my victory, inevitable victory. But uh, nonetheless, he, he put up a good fight. I mean, there's no real other refusal of the returns in the actual book, right? That I could have chosen that Alex couldn't no, have thought against. No, the ending is just too short. They added, right, the movie adds in that conversation. And I don't know how to dig into the point more, but there are so many things with this book that with everything that came out of this franchise has amalgamated. And I remember it so differently than it actually happens. The entire intro I remember for this book is definitely the movie intro. I'm definitely going to read all the books to my kids before I let them watch the movies. A hundred percent. As always, I've been your judge, Jack. This is Alex. And I'm Zach. Join us next week as we dive into the astonishingly accurate question mark hero's journey of Emma by Jane Austen. Yay! Oh, thank you. Thanks for sticking around. We'd love to hear what you have to say about this week's show or get comments for the next one. Uh, please follow us on Facebook or at Goodreads. Links are down in the show notes. Can't wait to hear what you have to say. As an 11-year-old with the ability, with the equivalent of a nuke in his you know, front pocket with his wand, you don't think uh, that's exactly the situation that leads to co peaceful cohabitation? Um, no. No. <laughs>